I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to chapter 2, verse 5. I'm going to be covering an expanse of scripture that we're doing a reboot series for, for, through 1 Corinthians. We're just kind of summarizing some ground we covered. This was actually three messages when I first went through it, titled, A Moronic Message, A Moronic People, and A Moronic Preacher. The common denominator being the word moronic from the word folly or foolish or moriah or moronic in verse 18. So as I read, I want you to look for all the times the Lord talks about folly or foolishness and all the times he talks about wisdom, true wisdom versus worldly wisdom and what the difference between the two is. 1 Corinthians 1 verses 18 and following. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, quoting from the Old Testament, I will destroy the wise, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discerning of the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, or literally nothing, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom, true wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And Paul ends that section with these five verses. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of human wisdom but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith 
might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That's what Paul was passionate about. He wanted a faith that sticks, because it's only a faith that sticks is a faith that saves. And such a faith is not rooted in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So, Father, I pray that you would exert the power of the gospel into our hearts this morning, that you would clear up our vision and cause us to boast in the cross and in the cross alone. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can grab a seat. Have you ever noticed how almost every movement, every organization has some kind of symbol to depict them so that you think of them when you see that symbol? If you see an apple, you think of... Macintosh, Apple computers. You see um, yellow arches, you think of that health food restaurant, right? Or if you see a swastika, you think of the evil Third Reich Nazi machine. If you see an elephant or a donkey, you think of a political party and might have certain thoughts about those parties. When you see a cross, what do you think of? You think of Christ, you think of Christianity. But the thing is, the symbol of the cross has lost the shock and shame value that it would have had for a first century believer. As we wear beautiful crosses uh, on, around our neck or you see a cross on a church. See, you see a cross when you walk in this building. It would be like a woman coming in here and having... 14-karat gold-plated um, injection, lethal injection needles hanging from her earrings. Or wearing the pendulum of a uh, silver-plated guillotine. Or if we had perched up above the building, say, uh, a hangman's noose. Or um, an electric chair. Crucifixion did not bring to people's mind warm sentimentality. It was the most abhorrent form of execution. In fact, the Romans who used it would only use crucifixion, that method of execution, for either slaves or convicted terrorists. If you are a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified. The Roman statesman Cicero said this about the cross. He said, quote, the very word cross should be far removed, not only from the Roman citizen, but also from his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. It was abhorrent to them. Now, the Gentiles weren't alone with that viewpoint of the cross. Do you know what the Jews thought of the cross? They despised it as well, and they actually had Bible for it. Because in Deuteronomy 21, verse 23, it says, Cursed is the man who is hung from a tree. And you know Paul quotes that in Galatians 3.13 as applied to Jesus Christ. Perhaps the best summary for the way the world thought of the cross, Jews and Gentiles alike, is illustrated in an ancient piece of graffiti that lies today in the Caturian Museum in Rome. If you were to see that piece of graffiti, you would see a man hanging on a cross with a donkey's head. And standing in front of him with outstretched arms in worship is another man. And the text reads, Alexander Menos worships his God. 
It was pure mockery of the idea that we would worship one who was crucified, who died such an abhorrent death. Now that's the backdrop, mind you, for the text that we are confronted with this morning, and specifically verse 18, where it says, For the word of the cross is folly. It is moronic. It is abhorrent to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. I would say today, well, let's stick 2,000 years ago. Culture's view of the cross, as I just described, as symbolized in that ancient graffiti, culture's view of the cross was starting to bleed into the church at Corinth. And the result was, it was causing them to drift away from the gospel, to forget the gospel. And as they forgot the gospel, they became more susceptible to all kinds of issues, such as factionalism and all the rest that I read out last week. It's like a human body. When a human body's white blood cell count goes down, their susceptibility to infection increases. And as the gospel leaves a human heart, as the gospel leaves a church, the biblical gospel they were moving away from, what happens is all kinds of issues will plague that person and plague that church. Now, we live in a fallen world. You're going to be plagued with issues whether or not, right? But the cross dictates how you respond. Now, the rub was this. They weren't renouncing Christianity in, 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 in an in-your-face kind of way. Rather, they wanted a crossless Christ. They wanted a crossless Christianity. And I would say that's happening today. People want Christianity without the offense of the cross. You read about it. You read deconstruction stories. They say, oh, we still believe in something about Jesus, just not the way you've taught about him. Well, if the way you've heard it is according to the Bible, it's truth. And so what we want to talk about this morning is what Paul did to, to take this church who had a very light, low, white blood cell count. He's trying to get them healthy. And to get them healthy, they need to, to have the unvarnished, fully abhorrent, totally glorious word of the cross broken open in front of them in a fresh way. That's what we're going to see this morning, the word of the cross. And number one, we're going to see how the word of the cross displays true wisdom and true power. Y'all with me? There were two twisted worldly values that dominated the ethos of Corinth. This was just part of the way people thought and were. These two twisted, fallen, worldly values. The first one was wisdom. They believed with the right know-how, there wasn't anything you couldn't do, be, or accomplish. Almost like your typical high school speech. Somebody will say that, right? You can do anything you want. You can be anything you want. We can figure it out. They had all kinds of uh, um, philosophies. There were 26 temples across the, uh, the city itself, each with its own uh, philosophy of life that would explain life for you. They had uh, these professional orators, these guys who would go around giving flowery speeches about life. 
They had an education system, which is both good and bad. You had all of that in there. And then, of course, you had the ancient Greek philosophers, uh, Aristotle, um, Socrates, Plato, all the rest. And they thought that through their own wisdom, their own smarts, their own figuring things out, there was nothing they can do. Now, I'm saying worldly wisdom, twisted value of worldly wisdom, because God's not exactly against wisdom, is he? Is he? No, wisdom is a virtue to God. Read the book of Proverbs. One pithy statement after another, how to live skillfully. That would be a good book to read a chapter every day, the book of Proverbs. Jesus Christ himself in our text is called the wisdom of God. So is God against wisdom? No. What he's talking about here is wisdom that leaves God out, that dismisses God. Wisdom that denies or ignores or isn't real about the reality of man's intrinsic fallen condition. And wisdom that says, you don't need God, and if you do, you can find him any old way you want. Do you know that, take the Ivy League schools, do you know that when, I think, to a school, all of them were founded, they taught the truth of Christianity. I mean, they, they were strong Bible-believing, and every student took theology. But I just read last month that Harvard now, who, who long departed that viewpoint, just has as their campus uh, chaplain an atheist. I, I can't figure that one out. And by the way, every college, every school of any kind still teaches theology. You know that, right? Just more subtly. They're teaching a view about God, a view about life, a view about yourself. And that's what Paul is talking about. Wisdom that leaves God out. It's been said that education without revelation, the revelation of God, leads to further generation, further degeneration. Wisdom without revelation leads to degeneration. Isn't that true? I mean, th th look at humanity. The more we learn how to do stuff, the more we learn how to use that stuff to do bad things to people, right? Wisdom, growth of knowledge without growth in the revelation of God leads to degeneration. I love the way Alistair Begg put it. He said, knowledge can teach you how to tie your shoes, but it can't teach you not to kick other people. That's because... Wisdom, in that way, can't get it done. Because man's ultimate problem is not intellectual, it is spiritual. It is spiritual. So in verse 19, Paul gets right after it when he says, For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. That's a quotation from Isaiah 29 and verse 14. But look what he does next. He reels off three rhetorical questions that are designed to ask the singular question, well, what can your wisdom really do for you? Look what he says. Where is the one who is wise? That would have been the learned men of a Greek academy, say a tenured professor. Where, where, where is he? 
And then he goes on to say, where is the scribe? Those were the smart guys in the synagogues who, who knew the Torah inside and out, just without the ultimate message of the Torah. And then he says, where is the debater of this age? That's both Greeks or wise men or scribes, the Jewish wise men. That's all of them who fancy themselves able to answer the most existential questions of the human existence. You know, Mars Hill style, Acts 17. Now, he follows up these three rhetorical questions with a fourth question that's a Proverbs-like question. Look at it. It's, it's kind of weird the way it's written. He says, has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now just land on that for a second. Try and figure that one out. Has not God made foolish the, the wisdom of this world? Like, what's he getting at, right? What are you trying to say, Lord? Well, read on. Verse 21, and you'll see he answers that. For... Or because, this is how he did it, since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. So how does he, how did he, in the wisdom of God, or rather, how did he make foolish the wisdom of the world? Answer, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Here's the answer. Here's, I put it in my own words this, this way. By setting it up so that man can think Brilliantly, man can think brilliantly, right? I mean, think of all the things that have been invented. Architectural wonders, skyscrapers that just go up, you know, almost into the heavens. Or computers with microchips and all that other stuff. And, or, or, or brains, open brain surgery, open heart surgery. He set it up so that while man can think brilliantly, man on his own cannot think his way to God. You never should forget that as you learn. You know, when, when Einstein stood before the Lord, the Lord didn't look at him and say, E equals MC squared? Man, I was waiting for ages for somebody to unpack that. Come on in. Oh, no. When Richard Dawkins stands before the Lord, he's not going to say, you are so smart, you almost convinced me I don't exist. Come on in. No, no. And yet, that's what the Greeks were after. Verse 22, Greeks seek what? Wisdom. That's what they were about. They're impressed by big brains, deep thinking, high IQs, sophisticated philosophies. So when they're told that the cross is the only way you will ever come to know God, well, to them, verse 23, it was folly. That's nothing but folly. <laughs> Through a guy who's crucified? You, wait, 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 wait. You're telling me that I know God through a guy who died like a terrorist or a slave? That's what you're telling me. What kind of man lands on a cross? And, and what kind of, what kind of um, wisdom tells me that I need to trust in him to be saved when he can't even save himself? That was the mentality of the Greeks. Now, how about the Jewish people? The second worldly twisted value 
that people breathed in the air of the ethos of Corinth was that of power. Corinth had been destroyed a couple centuries earlier, and now it was in a building revival, a commercial revival. It, w- it would have been like maybe um, Denver, 1850s, gold rush. You know, people going out there for gold and all the subsidiary industries. I mean, people could go, you could go out there and you could do something. They were about industriousness, which is a good thing, hard work. They were talking about, they were about power and influence and amassing wealth. And, man, if you went out there and you're willing to, you know, exert some elbow grease and do whatever it takes, you could be somebody. It was about power. And yet we look at verse, and it tells us this in verse 23, verse 22, where it says, for Jews, not, it doesn't even say seek, <laughs> Jews demand signs. The Jews demanded signs. And the mentality in asking for the signs was, we want to see your power, Lord. If you want us to believe in you, show us your power. And mind you, show us your power on our terms. Isn't that what they did? Matthew chapter 12, what do they say? What does it say in Matthew chapter 12? Show us the sign, Lord, then we'll believe. And what does Jesus say? A wicked and evil generation seeks after a sign. No sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. And when he's hung up there on the cross, Matthew 27, verse 40, they say, if you come down from that cross, show us that sign, then we'll believe. And it's like one preacher said. He came down all the way from heaven and they wanted three more feet. And if he had come down those three more feet, there would have been nothing to believe in. So the Jews demand signs. And and let's be clear about this. Their asking for signs or display of his power was not them seeking truth. Sometimes people say, I just want to see the power of God and then I'll believe. That's not really biblical because they were not asking those questions to find truth. It was a thinly disguised veil to reject truth. What they really wanted was a conquering political king who would deliver them from the oppression of the enemies. They were the good guys. Jesus, come and save us from the bad guys. Deliver us from these systems and structures and oppression and evil and all that. Come and do that. Oh, they wanted a king with with blood spattered all over him, the blood of their enemies, not his own blood for their sins. So the idea for them of a humiliated, crucified Savior who would be so weak he couldn't even carry his cross down the Via Dolorosa to the place of Golgotha. (laughs) That was, verse 22, verse 23, a stumbling block to them, an absolute scandal. So do you see what they were at, what they wanted to do with the cross? They didn't like what the, how the cross challenged their view of what they thought wisdom was. They didn't like how the cross challenged their view of what they thought power was. Now, let's read afresh verses 23 and 24, and there are two contrasting conjunctions. But, but, he says, we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. 
I want you to know how much the cross actually displays wisdom and power. We'll start with power. Jesus Christ laid aside his heavenly glory. He didn't stop being God. And there's a lot of weird, weird views of what's called the kenosis. He laid aside the voluntary use of those attributes. He didn't lose those attributes, okay? But he did lay aside the use of those attributes. His power, for instance, right? He laid aside his heavenly glory. And I would say that's the ultimate display of power. Because we like to hold on to our power, right? But he released his power for something big, namely the redemption of his people. Here's what he said. This is what he said in John chapter 10. So, so we don't get it twisted. That the ultimate mover behind the crucifixion of Christ was God himself. He said, don't think that people are taking my life from me. I have power to lay it down, and I have authority to take it back up again. And I'll tell you what, his sin, destroying, death, defying, hell, defeating, Satan, dismantling, wrath-absorbing sacrifice was validated when he rose from the grave in power. Now, he calls us to walk in resurrection power. And you can either believe, and I don't a lot, that I have resurrection power, or I can walk that out. But if you're willing, if you want to walk out resurrection power, don't forget what Paul then went on to say, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection, and what else? The fellowship of his suffering. So to experience his power, there will be suffering. And we're called to be people who experience both. Now, how about wisdom? This is, this is this is brilliant. We can never think of this. Only God could devise a way. I was talking to a couple of my kids on this, about this on the way to school. Only God could devise a way in which he could satisfy his justice without compromising it at the same time, extend grace to sinners and forgive them. Think of the cross as an intersection. It's an intersection of two pieces of wood. We're talking about the cross. Think about this beam being God's justice. He's got to punish sin. He can't just, over, he can't just sweep it under some rug in the corner of the universe, right? This is his holiness, right? This is his wrath, his justice, his holiness, his righteousness. Think about this cross beam being his mercy and his love and his grace and his forbearance. Jesus met at that intersection. God's righteousness demanded a payment. And God's love provided that payment. So that he could be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. That's why we sing, oh, the wonderful cross, right? You know, people... There is no forgiveness, there is no righteous forgiveness about, without the cross of Christ. And so it displays the very wisdom of God. Now he ends this section in verse 25 by saying, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. I speak sarcastically, but on his dumbest day, God is a whole lot smarter than all the IQs of every human combined, right? He goes on to say, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So I close this first point by asking this question. Do you see the cross 
as foolishness and weakness or power and wisdom. Well, how, how do you see it? You see the cross as foolishness and weakness or power and wisdom. If you see it as power and wisdom, it's because you are the called. But to those who are called, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, do you see the cross as wisdom and power for the problems of life that afflict us? Or have you become a bit of a Corinthian? Are you looking for something stronger or smarter to fix your problems? Remember the context. They were a gospel-forgetting church. And are we not gospel-forgetting people? Christ is the wisdom of God and the power of God, not just for salvation, but for sanctification as well. Now, I'm going to go to the second point, which I really believe is actually going to be my last point, so don't freak out. Um, and I'll table the rest for next week. But I want us to know, second of all, the cross saves nobodies and makes them into somebodies. That's verses 26 through 31. 1990, the media mogul mouth of the South, Ted Turner, was speaking at a banquet at the American Humanist Association where he glibly boasted and declared, Christianity is a religion for losers. Now, I believe if the Apostle Paul was in the audience, he would have said, hey, mouth of the South, you're slow to the draw. You're late to the game. I scooped that 2,000 years ago. I said that first. Look at verse 27. But God chose what is moronic, foolish in the world, to shame the wise. Yeah, you're exactly right. Christianity is for losers. I think he would say that to Mr. Ted Turner. Now, Paul doesn't just talk theology for the sake of talking theology. I hate how we say that's theological and that's practical. Everything's theological. It's just how we can connect the dots. So he's being extremely practical with this theology. Remember, remember, the church is shot through with crisis, right? Because they're shot through with issues. Starting with factionalism, which was threatening to utterly fracture the church into pieces. And because the worst, it's the worst issue, he makes it his first issue, and as we'll see for a couple weeks, he takes up division, chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. Some in that church, if you recall from last week, were lifting themselves up as better than others. Remember that? You with Team Peter? Baby, boom, yeah. Team Peter, here we go. Oh, you're with Team Peter? See ya, wouldn't want to be ya. They were looking down on others and lifting themselves up. So Paul is just not having that. In this section, he cuts them down to size. You are nobodies. And then lifts them up to the Savior. But in him, you've become somebodies. Look at the nobodies part. Verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise, according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. <laughs> not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish, God chose, chose what is weak, God chose what is low, and despised even things that are nothing. That's quite a brag sheet on the people that he chose. That's quite a brag sheet on us, right? He makes it clear, the ultimate 
re- reason that we belong to him is because he uses the word chosen. See all the times he says chose, 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 chose. I don't think you can miss that. And he makes it clear, we were not chosen because we were some great catch. And he needed to fill a position on his team. I don't think God was up the night before the draft and he had his draft board and he said, man, I really need a middle linebacker and I really need, and I hope that person is still on the board. You know, no, God did not choose that way at all. We went to, our family did a few years ago to Ellis Island where uh, some of our ancestors came in in the 1870s and the 1890s. Pretty, pretty fascinating to go there. But as the ships would come into the New York Harbor, they would pass the Statue of Liberty. And on the Statue of Liberty, you have these great words. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses. What a beautiful ideal, isn't it? You're poor, you're tired, your huddled masses. But the reality is, that's not really how it was. So that they would get to the harbor itself, but if they had any suspicion that there was something defective about the person, then they would send them out to Ellis Island, put them in the barracks there, and they'd get an inspection, and they would get a chalk mark on their outer coat, signifying if they had some kind of disease, or they seemed uh, mentally incompetent, or whatever. They were only looking for the best, and they came through. And actually, a lot of people got sent back at the cost of the uh, freight liner and have to go back to where they left from. Now, that is so different from how God selects. God selected people with chalk marks all over them, right? God didn't choose the best. He He chose the worst. But he really means, God does, give me your poor, give me your tired, give me your huddled masses. And Paul wants them to be humbled by this, doesn't he? God chose nobody. So stop, stop going all banny rooster. Stop puffing up your feathers and all that. And he does it for three reasons. And with this I close. He does it so that no human being might ever boast in the presence of God. Look at verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that, verse 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. Nobody's ever going to be able to say, well, I belong to God because I had the wisdom. I belong to God because I had the power. I, had, I belong to God because I was very smart or I figured this out or I did this religious thing or I was this economic level or this ethnic background or anything else, right? Nobody's ever going to be a boast in the presence of God. And I love what Ray Ortland Jr. said, Quote, pride is the ultimate anti-God posture, and he will make no peace with it. So Paul is cutting them down to size. But as I said, he's also lifting them up. Because this verse anticipates a great reversal that is coming. Go back to verse 28 quickly, the latter part. Things that are not, right? Things that are nothing, right? It's things that, people that are nobodies. And go up to verse 26. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. And I'd put it this way. Right now, somebody's want to shame nobodies. You really believe that Christian stuff? Like that's so, 
outdated. That's so old-fashioned. You are intolerant if you think that we should only live a certain way as it relates to relationship. You're intolerant. Or you're just gullible. Or you're just naive. Or you're moronic. Right? I mean, you, you, you stand up in some venue and you say, no, that is not true. You will be called naive, intolerant, gullible, and all the rest. Somebody's want to shame nobody's. But the day is coming when somebody's will be shamed to bring to nothing things that are. Mayor Bloomberg, former mayor of New York City, was interviewed by the New York Times in 2014. He was proud of his work of fighting smoking, obesity, and gun ownership. Maybe he thinks they all go together. I don't know. But he was interviewed, and he said, quote, I'm telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not even stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven, and it's not even close. There will be a great reversal coming when things that are not, things that are, are brought to nothing. Number two, he's done it this way so that Christ would be your treasure. This is so beautiful, so beautiful. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. God's design is for Christ to be your treasure. And when Christ is your treasure, Life will be lived right. You won't be immune from hard stuff, but you'll have Christ. And Christ will be your treasure. He says that Christ has become. What are the words right there? Just, just a moment to camp on those. That Christ would become your righteousness. Your righteousness. Well, I think it, it actually starts with wisdom. Let's go with that who became to us wisdom from God. That's the very thing he's talking about here, right? Like how to live life, how to live, how to live life. Christ can, is Christ your wisdom? You can't separate the living Christ from the word of Christ, right? So if you're going to follow a path of wisdom, you've got to be in the word. Christ is our wisdom. Practical living, skillful living is the idea. Christ is our wisdom. To know God, how we know him and how we live for him. But then he says righteousness. Because, um, because he made the ultimate transaction of the ages, the ultimate reversal when he traded our rags for his righteousness, our sin for his grace, all of that, then Christ is my righteousness. And we, we forget that so quickly, don't we? We so quickly get into legalistic thinking or guilt that we can't get rid of, and, and both of those are unbelief in the gospel. I don't have to perform, and I've got to tell myself that every day. That on my best day, Christ is my righteousness and better be. That's humbling. And on my worst day, Christ is my righteousness and better be. That's encouraging because i got some worse days. You? Christ became our wisdom, our righteousness, and then our sanctification. 
We are set apart in Christ. We're actually called saints, which is kind of crazy at times. You know, a saint, by the way, if you come from a certain background, isn't a super duper, super awesome Christian who just did everything and then somebody declared years after they died, they're, they're a saint now. No, we are actively right now saints. We're set apart in Christ. And I think just knowing that then nudges us in that positional truth that we're set apart in Christ, I think nudges us in the direction to actually practically live that out, right? Like, that's who I am. Lord, help me to live that out. And then he says, redemption. And he's going back to the uh, Exodus crossing slave imagery when the Israelites were in Egyptian bondage and they were freed from captivity. Jesus Christ has freed us from captivity. We often walk back in the cell, right? We often put those chains back on, don't we? And we have to choose every day by faith to believe that Christ has set us free. Is Christ your treasure? I'm not asking you if he's a theological concept, really. Is the living, do you have fellowship and intimacy with the living Christ? Not a set of dogmas, not a set of doctrine. We need that because that frames who he is. But he is to be known just like we know each other. He saved us so that Christ would be our treasure. And then finally, he did it this way. So that our boast would be in the Lord. So that as it is written, verse 31, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's kind of the point of it all. For the glory of his name, that we would boast in him. A couple years back, I haven't with these crazy COVID years, I was uh, helping coach uh, hockey out at Jack Adams Arena um, for like four to six-year-olds. And it was an absolute goat rope. Okay, like just trying to get them to stay on the drill for five minutes and not just devolve into, you know, pre-creation chaos or whatever. Um, they'd slash each other, so-and-so push me, so-and-so, just all of that. Like, so you got to be a coach with young kids and have a lot of patience. God, God is trying to grow my patience in a lot of ways. That was one of them. Um, but the end of practice, it was under the organization called Detroit Ice Dreams. Ice Dreams, awesome deal. Red Wings got behind it, 75 bucks a kid. Everything is covered for the year. We bring them together in a little bit of huddle, and they put their sticks up, and they say, Detroit Ice Dreams. And there's this unity for a second that's born of this common boasting. They put all their differences aside, even just for a handful of minutes, right, as they boasted in their team, Detroit Ice Dreams. And when we decide that we're going to boast in the Lord more than anything else, there's something that creates not man-made unity, but spirit-wrought unity. As we bring our hands together and we say, Christ is all. Now, next week we're going to see what was another thing that was taking them off course. But I just feel like we need to end here. And I just want to reiterate, God did this so that Christ would be our treasure and that our boast would be in him. Now I wonder, has the Lord spoken to you this morning? Just, just a basic exposition of Scripture, just walking through the Word of God. Has the Lord spoken to you about anything? Because again, he is 
not just a theological concept. He's a person to know, right? And what a person you know, um, you really have a relationship with somebody, you really know them, they speak to you. And God speaks to people by his word through his spirit. And I just, just really want to emphasize this morning to turn into that, to say yes to that. It, it might not be anything that I touched on. That's the way the Spirit works, right? It may be nothing like that. But that is the kindness of God wanting to minister to one of his kids. So Han's going to come. We have a few more songs to sing. Use this time to talk back to him, right? Talking back to him might be singing these songs to him. Really realizing I'm singing to him. You may need prayer. Nick will be in the back if you need some prayer. You just want something. The Lord has laid something on your heart. There's some inflection point you want to pray about. Come for prayer. All right? Well, let's stand to our feet. For the preaching of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God.